This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 22nd of July 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up on today's programme, we'll have a leaf through the global papers with Alex von Tunzelman. And then... The permanent collection arcs over 200 plus years of art production in British Columbia. And really the strengths of the collection are carving, painting and photography. We'll have a walk through Manubu Ikeda's first major North American show with Greg Scruggs. First, though, here's the news. North Korea fired several cruise missiles towards the sea to the west of the Korean peninsula in the early hours of this morning. That's according to the South Korean military. This follows the two ballistic missiles fired on Wednesday as Pyongyang and Washington step up displays of military force in a standoff over the isolated country's nuclear weapons and missile programs. The United States commissioned a warship in Sydney, Australia today, the first time a US Navy vessel has joined active service at a foreign port, as the two close allies step up their military ties in response to China's expanding regional reach. Algeria has applied to join the BRICS group and submitted a request to become a shareholder member of the BRICS bank with an amount of $1.5 billion. The North African country is rich in oil and gas resources and seeking to diversify its economy and strengthen its partnership with countries such as China. And in Germany, officials have called off a massive two-day hunt for what they believed was a lioness at large, saying the animal may have actually been a native specimen of wild boar. Since the creature was first spotted, more than 30 patrol cars, as well as helicopters, veterinarians and hunters, were on the scene. Riot police stood by to help protect the local population. Warnings were broadcast to the public via loudspeakers, warning apps and social media. These were lifted yesterday, but the mayor says police are prepared to react if the situation changes. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in the studio by the historian, writer and screenwriter Alex von Tunzelman. Good morning to you, Alex. Good morning, Georgina. What have you been up to? Oh, well, I mean, I've been uh, actually finishing some scripts off, trying to get them all done before the summer. Although, you know, at the moment, of course, um, all the American projects are on hold because of the writer's strike in the US, so it can only work at the moment uh, in British projects. I mean, that's really interesting. I, my union, Equity, called a, a, a big uh, demonstration on Friday and a lot of British screenwriters were, were, were joining in on that. Do you think that it might spread, the writer's strike, to, to this country? Well, I mean, we're nothing like as unionised as the US. In the US, if you are a writer and you want to work in TV, you really have to be a member of the WGA, um, you know, the Writers Guild of America, the, it's, it's so unionised that you simply won't get a job if you aren't. Um, that's not the case in the UK. There is the Writers Guild of Great Britain who are affiliated, but it's much more 
loose. A lot of people aren't necessarily members. Um, but I do wonder whether we're seeing, whether we're going to see this more and more, especially because of the rise of AI, you know, a big concern that I know we're talking about a lot on Monocle, mm. um, which, you know, is really very threatening. I mean, British screenwriters have nothing like as good terms as American ones at the moment, largely because we aren't unionised. Mm. Um, so perhaps this is a way that people are going to start going. And of course, it affects actors too, as we've seen in the US actors are joining in. But I was completely horrified by the idea that you can appear once uh, your image will be be recorded and then you can be in crowd scenes forever and not be paid for it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, this is an incredible threat to the livelihood of writers and actors, but not just them, of course, pretty much everybody involved in these creative projects. And I think people who sort of also, you know, some people haven't yet realised that this is going to spread to pretty much all um, white collar jobs as well. You know, this is something that's already causing redundancies, actually, in kind of creative industries, and I think will spread very fast. And, you know, the question is, can regulators and government get to grips fast enough um, with this new tech. I mean, I doubt it. Mm. I think we have a big problem coming. Mm. As you say, governments are going to have to step in and and regulate that. Uh, Our government here in the UK has had a bit of a drubbing (laughs) uh, this week. What ward do you live in? I live in Bethnal Green and Bow, which is extremely solidly Labour, although did before I lived there, I'll say, uh, sort of swing to George Galloway for a rather um, unusual <laughs> period, um, to, who, you know, who sort of has an interesting reputation. Um, but yes, so I'm, it actually makes no difference what I vote. Bethnal Greenbow will be a, a Labour MP. And actually, we have a very, very good Labour MP, Rishnar Ali, who's very popular locally. Um, mm. So uh, I do vote for her, as it happens, but, uh, but it wouldn't make any difference if I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, there were three key by-elections this week, uh, and in various parts of the country. Uh, one of them was in Boris Johnson, the former Prime Minister's uh, constituency, although he wasn't standing uh, in Uxbridge. Uh, and we'll, we'll get into those results in a little while. But one of the very key places was in the north of England, in Selby. And lots, obviously, huge amount of press coverage coming out about this. I particularly like this one from the local paper. Uh, and uh, it says, the winner of a competition to name the new leisure centre in Selby is Steve Wadsworth. He's won a free year's membership from Wigan Leisure and Culture Trust. That's the WLCT. He chose the name Selby Leisure Centre. (laughs) (laughs) Radical. So radical. (laughs) And radical for the voters there too, because they ditched the Tories. Now, this was a radical result. Yes. I mean, you know, in Uxbridge, the Tories, I mean, there was sort of something for everything in these news. You know, in Uxbridge, the Tories held on just by 495 votes. I mean, you know, down from a sort of 7,000 plus majority, pretty knife edge. Um, But in in Selby, uh, Labour overturned a 20,000 majority. Absolutely huge. Um, I think that was their biggest majority they overturned since the war, possibly. Um, And in uh, Somerton as well, we should mention the Liberal Democrats overturned a 19,000 majority that was Conservative as well. So really huge swings against the Conservatives. And we can see in the FT today, there is a pretty bleak editorial for Rishi Sunak to read. I mean, it actually sort of says, you know, I mean, I think they've just about been able to, because of the result in Uxbridge, some of the sort of Conservative supporting papers and so on have been able to spin this result a little bit as, oh, that's a disaster for Labour and all this. Well, it, it was pretty close, as I say, and it's really not a huge ringing endorsement for the Conservatives. That one was very much clearly about local issues. 
So the FT really does recommend, you know, sort of a, a pretty harsh program uh, for Sunak, you know, and it's saying because, of course, because the Uxbridge as well was very much around the ULES, this sort of ultra low emissions zone that is planned for London. Um, but the FT is saying very strongly that Sunak should not ditch green policies, which some, of course, now are encouraging him to do because they say they're unpopular. They're saying that he, um, you know, really must kind of actually dig into some of those green policies, rejoin the EU's Horizon program, which he's delayed. Um, you know, and could sort of keep going on jobs and investment. And I mean, with the bleak conclusion, he says that they say such efforts may still not avert a defeat by Labour, but they're the right thing for the party in this country. And they would at least secure Sunak a kinder write up in the history books than his two immediate predecessors. Mm. So perhaps that's the best he can hope for. Yeah. I mean, as you say, a pretty bleak read for Sunak himself. And people often used to say, well, it doesn't really matter what the papers say, because today's paper is tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper. <laughs> <laughs> Although, of course, it's not true. Now it's online forever. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's online forever. But let's talk about fish and chips, or at least chips, but actually not that kind of chip. <laughs> <laughs> no, the non-potato variety. So this is a, a fascinating story, I think, in the South China Morning Post, um, talking about China's chip wars. Um, and there's a sort of a rather fun way into this, because there's a Chinese fictional TV drama uh, called My China Chip, um, which is all about a Chinese private technology firm that takes on a state project to uh, make a laser device for a deep ultraviolet lithography machine. You, I hope you're clinging is, on to every detail. Lithog- lithography oh, Lithography, my God. I mean, I don't know. God, it's too early in the morning. <laughs> I need another cup of tea. Um, but, you know, it's essential for chip production, basically. Um, and effectively, this sort of plot thickens because the firm's boss is detained by a foreign government. There's all of this. But on the show, there's a sort of... You know, we don't want to give away too much, but there's kind of a super happy ending, you know, and China triumphs and all of this. Now, there's been a lot of joking online that this is really far too optimistic because in real life this is happening. And the US and its allies have escalated chip export restrictions on China. And also, you know, there are bans on imports of some essential materials for making this from the US, the Netherlands, and now just happening with Japan as well. Mm. So, in fact, China really is in a bit of a can I say a pickle or the food theme extends? <laughs> China, China really is in a bit of a difficult position with this um, because, of course, you know, these tiny, tiny microchips, uh, semiconductors and so on that we're all, you know, we rely on for everything now. I mean, they might be small, but they're the foundation mm-hmm. pretty much of everything we do. And there are actually quite serious sort of shortages coming up. So, so there is absolutely a serious aspect to this story, not just TV drama. But mm. it's, you know, I think this is kind of a little vision into the future, into these trade wars. Well, of course, Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, has recently been in China. She was talking about chips and sort of regulation and all these trade wars and things. But sticking with food, she also uh, was at a state dinner where apparently she ordered four portions of mushrooms. Now, these are psychedelic mushrooms, oh. although apparently uh, the cooking process r- removes a- a- any trace of that. But she was then seen behaving very oddly. <laughs> she kept bowing to her Chinese uh, uh, hosts and they weren't buying back and so there's been a lot in the papers about was Janet Yelland high? <laughs> now we don't know uh, but she is obviously denying it but that actually links quite nicely into a, a story in the New Statesman uh, because there uh, apparently a, a psychedelics expert has said that this could be uh, using psychedelics could be the biggest breakthrough in years for treating depression Yes, it's some really interesting research by a man called David Nutt, who some listeners may know the name of because he has been sort of pretty prominent for a couple of decades in sort of drug policy and so on. Um, He was actually at one point, uh, I think it was in about 2009, I'm just looking for the fact, uh, he was 
fired by the Labour government at that time um, because he said that he thought MDMA and so forth forth was less damaging than alcohol. Um, He's pretty much sticking to this line. He's done lots of research and he's got this new book, uh, Psychedelics, the Revolutionary Drugs That Could Change Your Life. Um, He's quite an advocate for this because in tests that he's done it's fascinating the effect on depression is he says you know a revelation um, there's no doubt about it i genuinely never expected something to work so fast and so powerfully two weeks after a psychedelic trial 10 out of 12 patients met the criteria for recovery from depression um, within a week and often within a day it halved depression scores so i mean this is sort of extraordinary and i think The interesting question is going to be, you know, he says this is the biggest breakthrough in 50 years against depression. That's absolutely huge. The question is going to be, can, again, governments and regulators move fast enough? Mm. You know, because we have, mental health is an absolutely huge problem. It is another pandemic going on. In a much minefield. <laughs> yes, yeah. absolutely. And, you know, but what's been happening, of course, is that some of these drugs, you know, for instance, magic mushrooms, as, as Mrs. Yellen may well be able to you know, are, are something that has kind of for many years was legal. People would just walk into the fields and try and pick the right ones and, you know, that was sort of allowed. And it was all made illegal in around sort of the 1990s and so forth. Can governments now move back from that or are they afraid of looking weak? Mm. And, you know, he makes the point, which is sort of quite interesting, that you've got, you know, in Canada, for instance, um, you know, where they're sort of they're saying, oh, you know, uh, psilocybin is too dangerous. And he says, well, but on the other hand, they are allowing assisted dying. So you can be euthanized, which is sort of ultimately very dangerous. Mm. Um, but you couldn't take some mushrooms. So, you know, these sort of contradictions are coming up. And I think, again, this is a real challenge, an interesting challenge for policymakers to see if they can move fast enough with the technology. Mm. Well, let's look at what's growing in Canada, because it's not just magic mushrooms. I'm not sure if they do grow in Canada. <laughs> but uh, they, I have no idea. They have, <laughs> they have spectacular mountaintop wildflowers. Uh, and they bloom in the summer in the Canadian alpine resort town of Whistler in British Columbia. They're not the only fragile plants blooming, though. Japanese artist Manubu Ikeda's first major North American show opened on uh, June the 24th. I think that was... It hasn't opened. In, I guess it has. June was last month, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it opened on June the 24th at the Ordain Art Museum. It runs through this month and also into August. It's called Flowers from the Wreckage. And the exhibition showcases Ikeda's large-scale pen and ink drawings inspired by the art of Ukiyo. Can you speak Japanese? Oh, no, I'm afraid not. I wish I could. Well, this word means floating world, uh, and it's from Japan's Edo period, as well as contemporary anime and manga. So Monocle's Gregory Scruggs toured the museum with the director and chief curator Curtis Collins, who showed off the latest addition to the permanent collection. It's a long-lost work from the 1952 Venice Biennale and the studio space where Ikeda takes up residency this summer. Gregory first asked Curtis to tell him some more about the building. We just turned seven this year, so that's very brief in museum years, and the building was designed by Patricia and John Patkow and founded by Michael O'Dane and Yoshi Karasawa. And the idea behind the building was that it would really recede into this grove of trees that we're on, and this lot was the former car repo lot for the municipality, so a slight improvement with this 60,000 square foot building, primarily featuring hemlock 
and wonderful vistas onto the mountain. So really much of the building is to bring the forest into the building because the forest in British Columbia is both an important subject matter as well as an important material, as we'll see in the permanent collection. Who was Michael O'Dane, and and can you tell me about his art collecting philosophy? Michael O'Dane and Yoshi Karasawa are the founders of this museum. Michael is the head of Polygon Homes in Vancouver. So many of the homes and condos that have risen over the past 40 years are a result of Michael's efforts with Polygon. And that's about the same time that he began collecting. His collection really ranges from BC art to Canadian art to international art. And when he was thinking about creating a museum that was dedicated to the art of BC in terms of the permanent collection, he toured a number of communities throughout British Columbia, however, landed on Whistler because Whistler is an international resort in the fact that we see skiers and summer visitors from around the world, has beautiful hotels, wonderful restaurants, and all the amenities of, a, of a, I would say, a, a wonderful resort experience. So the museum was a natural fit. We consider ourselves a national, international venue, and, and we see visitors from around the world year-round. Let's take a look at the permanent collection. And- Absolutely. So could you please tell me more about the permanent collection, what types of art and from what cultures and eras of British Columbia might the visitor experience here? The permanent collection arcs over 200 plus years of art production in British Columbia. And really the strengths of the collection are carving, painting, and photography. In terms of carving, really the the creation of art in British Columbia starts with the indigenous nations, up and down the coast, as well as the interior. So we have a wonderful collection of 19th century masks. However, that collection is really anchored by a very 20th century masterpiece, and that's called The Dance Screen by James Hart from Haida Gwaii. And in addition to carving, painting is very important to the permanent collection, and I would say we have one of the premier Emily Carr painting collections in the world. Emily Carr, late 19th, early 20th century painter who has now gained an international reputation and really representing not only the forests of BC but indigenous communities around BC in the late 19th and early 20th century. And really, she travels to France in the early 20th century and that's where she has a major change in her work where she picks up very bold colors and post-impressionist brushstrokes, however, applies them to describing both the people and places of British Columbia. Could you tell me more about this recently acquired work? Well, one of our most notable works by Emily Carr that we acquired just a few months ago is called Survival. And Survival features this lone, really odd-shaped tree in what appears to be either a clear-cut or an area that has been hit by fire. And it's been out of public view for upwards of 30 years and was first shown in the 1952 Venice Biennale where Canada had its first solo representation. And so for us to acquire this piece that is in in private hands for most of its history 
was a small coup for this museum, and as you see, it really describes the radiating lines and brilliant color. Emily created a signature style that represents BC very well. Can you please tell me as well about the Vancouver School of Conceptual Photography and the role of, of that pillar of the Audain's permanent collection? A very important movement in Vancouver started during the late 70s and, and really picked up momentum through the 80s, and it's referred to as the Vancouver School of Conceptual Photography. And really, it was a result of a number of things converging. One was artists like Stan Douglas, Rodney Graham, Jeff Wall, presenting photography within the context of fine art. The other describing feature, I would say, is the use of light boxes. And these artists looked beyond Vancouver and established themselves internationally. So that's a, a critical part of our collection. So like our Emily Carr display, which is one of the premier Emily Carr displays in the world, this display of Vancouver photoconceptualism is one of the only places where you can see this 365 days a year. You have touring exhibits as well, special exhibits. What will be on display this summer that visitors can check out? Again, we host exhibitions from around the world, and we produce exhibitions in-house. Our curator, Kiriko Watanabe, has been working with Ikeda Manabu, very well-known international Japanese artist, and he'll be here at the end of June when his show opens, and he creates these wonderful, massive drawings and paintings that couple both calamities and rebirth all in the same imagery and the show is called flowers from the wreckage and upstairs manabu will have a live studio for the duration of the summer and this show will then hit the road to cleveland next year and so it's again a very interesting indicator of this boutique's museum's ability to produce exhibitions and host exhibitions from around the world could you tell me more about the live studio component and how visitors can interact with that that feature of the exhibit? So Manabu often spends two or three years creating one piece. And so while he's here over the course of July and August, visitors can go upstairs and he'll be in, in the midst of creating one of his major works. So they can talk to Manabu, watch him work, and just see the incredible detail and attention that he pays to these incredible scenes that fuse ideas around the environment with ideas of calamity, uh, but always with a sign of hope in terms of humanity's ability to reinvent itself. And just lastly, why should a, a visitor to Whistler in the summertime who might be drawn to trails and lakes and all of the outdoor amenities, why should they also carve out some time to come indoors to the Ardain Art Museum? In British Columbia, the environment and outdoor activities play a very important role in our cultural identity and how people from beyond BC experience us. But coming indoors to see how those things are represented in photographs, paintings, and carvings, I think will give you a thicker experience of British Columbia. And you can come to terms with the cultural realities of such a fantastic province.
That's Curtis Collins, who is speaking to Gregory Scruggs there. And uh, the exhibition they're talking about runs until August. Uh, And, of course, they were talking about environment and catastrophe. Uh, And it's all over the front pages these days. It's completely inescapable. We are in the midst of climate change. Uh, And France 24 has a big story about Paris being the most deadly city in Europe in terms of heatwave risks. Yes, Parisians are at most risk of dying in European heatwaves. I found this story really very interesting why that should be the case. Um, And basically these researchers have looked at mortality risks due to heat and cold across 854 cities from 2009 to 2019. So there's, sorry, from 2000 to 2019. So and unequivocally, Paris is top of the list in heat-related risk across all age groups with a likelihood of death due to rising temperatures. Um, There are some other, but it was many times higher than other European cities, Amsterdam and Zagreb following up, but Paris is much higher. And so they're sort of looking into the reasons why this should be the case particularly. Now, there's a whole load of them. And partly it is is that obviously cities like Madrid are built much more to cool down because they're much more used to heat waves. Paris is not. So there are fan, you know, fascinating facts, like, for instance, those famous grey rooftops all over Paris. Zinc, of course, yes. yes the zinc, exactly, yeah. that you know, Van Gogh painted and all this is wonderful. That absorbs heat. So there's a huge problem with those just heat up those buildings beneath them more and more and more. Um, so there's a kind of, you know, there are very, very specific problems, but there are also lots of general problems. But it does seem that the risk is much higher there. And of course, if you go back to the summer of 2003, some listeners may remember there was a huge heat wave across the whole continent. Um, and indeed, the deaths in Paris were far higher Mm. than ever else. Well, of course, people should just stay very still, stay indoors, drink lots of water. Now, that's not what a lot of women are doing at the moment (laughs) because, of course, there is big, big women's football going on right now. Tell us more about this. Well, absolutely. It's the Women's Football World Cup, which is big news, and I very much liked this story. There's coverage of it in uh, the New York Times Associated publication, The Athletic, has a fascinating story about Haiti's women football team at the World Cup um, as they headline it a story of horror, hardship and hope. Um, And it's kind of completely fascinating because, of course, you know, many of us will know that Haiti has had a really difficult past couple of decades and a lot of the women on their football team, of course, were children at the time of the earthquake, which, of course, was such huge news around the world. Um, and so there's a kind of story of triumph in there, but also stories of difficulty. So, I mean, there's I mean, there's some really wonderful and fascinating details in this article and, and awful ones as well. I mean, so, for instance, it's going to be very difficult. They've got a fixture against the team from France. Now, France was the colonial master in Haiti and ran the slave trade there. Um, And a particularly awful detail of Haitian history was that there was the only successful slave revolt in history happened in Haiti in the 1790s against France um, and Haitians won their freedom um, under Toussaint Louverture, um, their kind of leader, and won independence in 1804. Um, They beat France, astonishingly. But... Uh, Napoleon rolled back on that, um, reimposed slavery. France reinvaded um, and imposed a huge, devastating indemnity on Haiti, a huge debt of hundreds and hundreds of millions of francs that Haiti only repaid um, very, very late on in the 20th century. Mm. And that's kind of accounts for, um, among many other factors, much of Haiti's poverty. So you can only imagine that for this women's football team, there are an awful lot of scores to settle that aren't just 
just about football. Yeah, yeah. Of course, the British uh, women's team are called the Lionesses. And yes. the li- <laughs> A lioness has been in the headlines this week. This has got to be my favourite story of the entire week. I mean, absolutely irresistible story, just sort of more and more enjoyable by the minute, um, especially after we had. So, you know, the story was originally that it was a lioness and then we had the story. In, in Berlin. So, so, so in Berlin, yes, who'd, who'd escaped and was sort of wandering down Potsdam, you know, uh, sort of <laughs> causing whatever trouble lionesses cause. Um, anyway, there was a bit of video and it's sort of people saying maybe it's a dog, maybe it's this. No, people were like, no, 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 it's a lioness. Anyway, uh, then the mayor of Klein Machnow uh, rolled it back to saying it was a Helm Dicken Wildschwein, a uh, light-coloured, fat, wild pig. <laughs> um, so we learnt that perhaps this was... But there is a very interesting report in DW saying that actually, and I hadn't realised this, that in fact in German households, exotic pets such as uh, snakes and even lions and tigers, it's actually remarkably easy legally to keep such exotic pets. Um, because one of the things that went on with this story is, of course, all the locals of zoos in Berlin and so on were asked, do you still have all your lions? And they all counted them. And yes, they did have their lions and circuses and so forth. No escape lions are reported. But it turns out that there are Germans just sort of wandering around with lions in their houses. Doesn't seem like a brilliant idea. So in the summer of 1994, um, an alligator called Cayman Sammy became a celebrity after his owner took him along to sunbathe by a lake near Dormergen. Uh, he escaped and was recaptured only after several days. So, so this has been going on quite a bit in Germany. And I think people are sort of asking in this DW article, should we, in fact, be possibly looking at this? <laughs> Well, I have always wanted to keep a pet giraffe. Great idea. You need a double height ceiling there. Exactly. (laughs) It would be fun. So that is the story of a uh, wild boar masquerading, really, as as a lioness. And if we look to the Philippines, we have a drag artist masquerading as Taylor Swift. I absolutely love this story, which is in the Washington Post. This is one of my favourites of the day. That So Taylor Swift, you know, huge global pop superstar, is doing a huge world tour, very excitingly, but she's not stopping in the Philippines. And uh, Filipinos are very upset about this because they're big, big Taylor Swift fans. So into the breach has stepped a drag queen with the most extraordinary, extraordinary real name if he's called John McClane Coronel. John McClane, of course, the hero of Die Hard. So I just, first of all, <laughs> cannot resist his real name. But his drag name is Taylor Sheesh. Um, so he's been performing and he's turned into a massive star on TikTok and now having gigs where he sort of plays Taylor's whole set and goes through it. And I mean, he seems to be extremely good and very popular. And there's some wonderful pictures in the Washington Post report of fans sort of screaming and holding their arms out, having the most wonderful time. And he's very beautiful, I must say, in his outfit. I mean, it's quite flattering to Tay-Tay. I hope she's pretty happy about it. I'm sure she is. Um, And he seems to have become also, I think, in the Philippines, you know, Taylor Swift, it seems, has really been taken up by the LGBTQ community that, you know, she is, of course, a supporter of LGBTQ rights, but they've really sort of embraced her as fully just articulating the queer experience. So so it seems that I mean, you can see pictures of massive crowds Huge. of fans sort of crying, screaming, everything. So so I think this is rather lovely that, you know, even in the age of streaming, we actually do still value some live performance. Totally. Alex, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks also to our studio engineer in London, Sam Impey, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. And Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>